last week as Jordan brought the word from uh, just from Scripture about God's immutability. His, his, he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, there, was, there was something particular that Jordan said that the Lord uh, quickened in my heart to be able to want to spend time in this psalm today. He said that God is never changing in our battle with sin. And I said, you know, the Lord just had me say, I think we need to spend a little time on that. Uh, mainly because I can't remember the last time I preached a message about fighting our sin. I said, oh, it's time then. But also, I think part of our frustration in our lives is that we don't know how to battle our sin. So we end up thinking, I'll never change, this will never change, so I'll give up. And then we develop these patterns and habits that stick with us, and we're stuck in them, and we never think they can really, like God, where are you? I, I'm just not going to pay attention to this anymore. But those, those little habits and sins and motivations and thoughts, they sabotage things. They sabotage when we want to uh, take a step in our marriage or our parenting or even uh, in the workplace to say, I, I want people to know who I am in Christ. Guys, we got to switch the lighting. I realized I could see people because when it switches, I can't see very well. All right. Now your shadows. <laughs> but when we, when we take a step in faith, we feel like we're getting cut off at the knees. And I think that's because sometimes we don't know exactly how to address our own hearts and recognize the sin and the battle with sin that we're going through. So these are uh, the words of King David in Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for, for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. 
Father, we ask that we would have the effect of your heart communicated to us and help us along in our journey with you, Father. Through Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection life that is in us with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Reading a psalm like this can make you ask the question, is this supposed to make me feel better? You know, we go to the psalms and we're trying to feel good about life. You happen upon this one, you think, is this really supposed to help me feel better? In the Lego movie, if you have not seen it, you should. The Lego movie, when the main character, Emmett, who is chosen and he's in the congregation of all these other Lego people, he is honest with the fact that he can't do what they need in order to conquer Lord business. He's giving this less than eloquent speech. And he's saying, I don't have any special qualities. I don't have anything that can help us. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. And at one point, the swamp creature says, is this supposed to make us feel better? You can read a psalm like this and you're asking the same question. Sounds like he's just sunk and stuck. Should that be our experience in battling our sin? What should we be experiencing with this? Especially in our culture where the mindset is we need to think more positively and we need to make sure that we have enough, uh, um, not, in our thoughts we don't have enough that's dragging us down but is promoting us and thinking, like this is not a good cultural mindset Psalm. This is not where you go. So how do we approach this? Maybe David was too hard on himself. Surely it's not as bad as he was describing. After all, God's loving and, and forgiving, right? He's a loving and forgiving God. So we can think this is an Old Testament passage that maybe just need to ignore a little bit or even disregard completely because of its negativity. But is this an experience that Christians have had or should have? Did Jesus' death and resurrection rescue us from the feeling of battling our sins? When we read the New Testament, we find that Christians are not immune to bad desires. Our faith in Christ doesn't vaccinate us to sinful desires and sinful actions. The psalm, particularly this psalm, is helpful to know how to respond when we're convicted by our sinful desires, motives, and actions. The Christian life entails a battle with outward evil, the Bible calls the devil and the world system, but the Christian life is also a battle with inward evil, called the flesh. Now look, God is loving and forgiving. He accepts us as we are. But I think a lot of times, especially in our cultural moment, we just stop there. And God, you just set me as I am, so I'm just not going to get bogged down by all the sinful things that are going on in me. You, I'm just going to concentrate on your love and your forgiveness. God is loving. He is forgiving. He will accept you. He accepts us all as we are. But remember, we can come as we are, but he, he doesn't want us to stay as we came. He wants us to change into the image of his son. And that's a, it's called a battle. And the battle is real. Much of our misery and discontentment can be traced to the reality that we're not engaged in this battle. We give up because we're not convinced 
Anything will ever change, so we ignore conviction, and then we do what Romans 1 says, we try to hush the voice of the Spirit in us by just sinning more. I'm just going to sin more in this category and try to hush the Holy Spirit. What we don't realize is the battle. When we don't, we aren't battling sin, it's not like we're in some ceasefire. It means the sin's winning. We are to be actively fighting our sin. But we know the end of the story. God wins. When the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, who, <coughs> who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that we are saved through this, this struggle that seems to always go on. God has dealt a death blow to sin through Jesus' death and resurrection. And there will be a day. There will be a day when we sin no more. Amen? There will be a day when we sin no more. And what a happy day that will be. But until that day, we live by and we live through the grace that God gives us in the battle with sin. So taking a step back from this psalm, uh, particularly just for our first point, just to want to be able to give a scope of what this doctrine of battling sin is called, what theologians call this indwelling sin. It's the doctrine of indwelling sin. And we can look at Romans 6 to kind of help us uh, figure out one of the passages that helps us figure this out. In Romans 6, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So look what's happening. Old self crucified. In order that something else happens. Jesus, we die with Jesus. Our sin and the penalty of our sin is placed upon him so we then can be accepted by God. But now we have a responsibility to bring the body of sin to nothing. Later on in that chapter, Paul says, let sin not therefore reign in your mortal body. There's a struggle there to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and from members to God as instruments for righteousness. So th there's, a, there's a responsibility that we have in making sure that we are continually going to God. So, what has happened? When Jesus died on the cross, and our trust in this uh, is, what, is what we access in our faith with Christ, death's dominion has been removed from the lives of believers through Jesus. He, the authority, the dominion, the dominance, all of that, that it means this. When we trust Christ for salvation and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can never, ever, ever, ever say, the devil made me do it. Beforehand, unbelievers, they still have a place they can say that. For the believer, the devil can't make us do it because now we have been awakened. The, the authority of sin and death has been removed. We're now under the authority of God and his grace and, and his righteousness. So now we are to present ourselves to righteousness and not go back. But we try to go back. So we are freed. We, death's dominion is removed. Now we are freed from sin's external control. But inwardly, actively, it still lingers in us. Guy who wrote a book years ago said it's evil at my elbow. 
just always there. It's always kind of around me. We are, even though sin's dominion has been removed, we're still enticed by sinful desires and cravings to go after what we think will be pleasurable for us here rather than wait for God's good response to us to give what is good by his definition. And then the responsibility of believers is to bring the body of sin to nothing. That means our lives on this earth until Jesus returns or we we are with him, we are the ones who say we are continuing to be more and more and more like Jesus in everything. And as we do that, we win the battle. But here's my question, and I've had this question for a long time. Why in the world did God do it this way? Because if all of us were in charge, you know what we would do? Take sin away completely, right? You trust Jesus for salvation? Boom, no more sin. Sounds like a better plan for everybody. I, that would be great. Never have to make my wife cry. That would be really cool. That would be fun. Know exactly the wisdom to apply in all parenting situations. That would be great. But God doesn't do it that way. Why? I think we get a glimpse of this in the Old Testament. A, a, a glimpse for a reason. At least this is how I've it's been able to help me. Remember when Israel went from Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, and then they get called out, passed through the Red Sea, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then they go into the Promised Land. And their job in the Promised Land was to drive out all the other nations. Now, they're driving those nations out not because God's a bully and he just wants people's land. He actually did it as a judgment because they were sinful nations. They did not honor God as God, but they, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshipped idols, but more than that, They were brutal to one another. Their own people, they were brutal. So God sent his people in, and and the the taking over the land was a judgment on the nations that were there. God's interaction with those nations, because he's sovereign over every nation, whether that nation loves him or doesn't, he's sovereign over all of them. So he says, go in and drive out all the people in the land. And we get to the end of Joshua, in in the beginning of the book of Judges, and we find that they didn't drive out all the land. All the nations in the land. And then God comes to them and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave them there to test your heart. Now, God God will test. God does not tempt. There's a difference in those. God will allow situations in our lives to reveal to us what's really there and what's the motivation. But that is not a temptation for us to sin. The Bible's clear, James 1. That temptation comes from inside of us. We can't say when we're tempted, God's tempting us. But there, is, there are situations that God will bring about and allow in our lives to see what's, what bubbles up inside of us for, for our own good to be able to understand. I'm not thinking straight about that. Something needs to be renovated in my own heart with God to be able to think of Him correctly and understand Him truly. God left the other nations to see, to help the people of Israel see what was really in their hearts so they would trust him more and more and more. So I do think that God leaves the lingering activity of sin in our bodies to bring to nothing so we live by faith every day to trust him. God, what's in my heart? I want to trust you. I want to trust you because as we're doing that, catch this, as we're doing that, we're in. We are increasing our capacity to enjoy God forever in heaven. We're increasing 
everything. One, through our battle, we understand what Jesus went through to pay for the penalty of our sin to set us free from that death and sin. But we also understand I'm increasing my capacity to enjoy Jesus forever in heaven. So we want to pursue what God has. We want to pursue holiness in Christ. A missionary, David Livingston, in the 1800s, he went to Africa, uh, sub-Sahara Africa. He was looking for a, uh, a, he was trying to make a pathway, a trade pathway from one coast. He started in the east and was going all the way to the west, trying to figure out how to get through to create a trade um, avenue to bring the gospel is what he hoped, and he did. But when he first got there, he was introduced to lions. Not, not, he's originally from England, so not many lions are happening around in England. But he goes there, he's got some guys helping him, and they all told him there's a lion right over there. So David Livingston gets his rifle. He goes up. When the lion surfaces, he shoots the lion. And then the African who was helping him jumped up and said, that's awesome, he shot the lion and is running toward the lion. And David recognizes he he might not be dead yet. So he runs to try to stop this guy. And at that moment, the lion came, had one last lurch to come and attached himself, bit David Livingston's shoulder. He could never raise his shoulder, uh, raise his arm up ever again. The lion latches onto him. The African picks up the gun, finally shoots the lion. Now, that's a picture for me. When I read that, I went, that's a picture of what sin is. It has been mortally wounded by the death of Jesus and his resurrection. But it has one last lurch in this life, trying to bring us down, trying to harm us. or uh, It can't kill us, can't bring us away from, from what God has done in Christ. But it makes us feel like it. And that's where we get to Psalm 38 and David saying, I feel miserable. Because of my sin, my foolishness. So that quick <laughs> uh, doctrine of indwelling sin, but now what we, what we want to capture in Psalm 38 is the fight with sin. And Psalm 38 is David's fight with sin. He's in the trenches. He describes separation that sin causes. It's affecting his relationship with God. And you know, God is... God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. So when we ignore our sin, he's not ignoring us. He still runs after us and he still says, I want all of your heart and I want all of your trust. So that's when David says, your arrows have sunk deep in me. They've sunk into me. God's going after David's heart because sin is causing this uh, emotional and spiritual separation. David's relationships are hampered. His relationship with God is hampered. His relationship with people is strained. My closest kin are far off, he said. And he's sunk in sorrow. He finally gets to the point of saying, I'm sorry for my sin. He, he can't even speak. He said, I have no rebukes. Because I look at myself and I think, who am I? I can't. I'm the worst sinner there is. I can't tell somebody else something. But he knows where to take these. And in verse 30, sorry, verse 15, he says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. He knows where to take this fight. It's not just up to him. He knows to go to the Lord with it because God's going after him. And actually, he's looking for that salvation that 
what, what then is revealed through the Old Testament about the Messiah coming, about the final sacrifice for sin, about if there were just one sacrifice that could do away with all sacrifices, that would be the thing. David's looking for the same thing. And listen, these are things, Psalm 38, we feel this in our lives and in the frustration of battling with sin. The New Testament describes it as putting off and putting on. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Old self, crucified, needs to be brought to nothing. New self, Jesus. We put Jesus on over and over and over again, but easier said than done. And this is the battle with the flesh. The New Testament refers to the old self as the flesh. It's not, not necessarily the skin that we have on us. It's that soul deep component of our lives. That's where we feel the lion's last lurch. Galatians 5, again, Paul says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I remember as a teenager reading that uh, upper teens, junior, senior in high school. I really didn't read the Bible consistently until I was 16. Because the Lord just finally grabbed a hold of my heart and I just started reading. But can't, I love the short books. Short books in the New Testament. It's all about those. Galatians, one of those short books. I remember reading this and saying, why does God want to keep us from doing what we want to do? The spirit and the flesh are opposed to keep you from doing what you want to do. I want to love God. Does it mean I can't love God? No, it means that my flesh still has that component of wanting to please itself rather than wait for God's pleasure or trust God for that pleasure and satisfaction. John Piper says, the flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its own power to try to fill it. It's Jeremiah 2.13. People of Israel have created, have done two evils. They have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. But then they went and hewed out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that can hold no water. When we go after the flesh, what we're doing is saying, I, I'm going to pile up what I think is good for me. And God's looking at that and saying, it's insufficient. It's, it's not going to last. And you're going to be frustrated at the end of it. Remember Moses? He didn't want to uh, have the passing pleasures of sin. So he didn't want to, to go after being the son of Pharaoh's daughter anymore. He wanted to be known in his relationship with God. The spirit and the flesh are in opposition in the life of believers they're not in opposition in the life of unbelievers who continue to hush the voice of the Spirit. But there is this opposition so we don't do what we want. We want to sin. And we, we want to return to former influences and former pleasures because we believe the lie that God will not satisfy us. We believe the lie that he's not going to be there for us in our future. And so we have to stockpile things. We have to make sure things are the way we need them to be in order for us to have a satisfaction in the future. But God says, trust me, and I will not stop doing good to you. I will never turn away from doing good. That's the new covenant. The Holy Spirit combats our fleshly impulses through the grace of conviction. 
Now, there's a chart in the notes if you have them. I don't know if we have them available for the screen. I hope so. Yes, awesome. Uh, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Uh, too often we think that when we're being convicted by sin, we're being condemned. God doesn't want us to go, if we are genuine believers, if we have trusted Christ for salvation, and we placed all of our faith in him and say, God, I'm not going to be on the throne anymore. I'm going to trust you. Jesus died in my place. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve to die so I could have his resurrection life. God, give me that. I repent of my sins. I trust you. Genuinely converted. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Here's the promise. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fascinating. Now, one of my... I don't know how I'm wired, is I, and the sin, one of the sins that the Lord just has not taken away from me, and I don't, I don't think he'll take it away till heaven, I am prone to condemnation. I am prone to heap on to where I, I have, my wife is still, after 22 years of marriage, is still hesitant to bring things to my attention because she doesn't want me to close myself off to her and the family because I just get morose and I get deep in condemnation. And I have to remind myself, no, I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm not being condemned. So hopefully this can help you, uh, and, and we can have make it available if you want to take it for study purposes as well. Uh, the notes will be online later today. Conviction is a grace from God. Condemnation is gloom from Satan. Satan wants us to be condemned. So he wants to convince us that we are condemned, that we're too far gone, that God, God, no, this is the last straw. God really is mad at you now. Everything Jesus did is over. In conviction, it's God's means of sustaining our relationship. God comes after us and he convicts us in order to keep the relationship. Whereas condemnation is the enemy's means of separating us in our relationship with God. In conviction, there is hope for change. In condemnation, we are hopeless for change. In conviction, we point to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. So even though we are feeling the weight of sin, we look to Jesus and say, you paid the penalty for that sin. So now I don't have to bear the penalty for that sin. I don't have to punish myself, and I don't have to make other people punish me. Because Jesus took that to set me free from it. Now, condemnation points to self's failures in sin. We continue to look at our failures over and over and over again. In conviction, we transfer that penalty on Jesus. In condemnation, we heap penalty on ourselves. In conviction, we're restored, we're rescued and restored. In condemnation, we're accused and alienated. In conviction, we end up saying, I want to trust God. In condemnation, we say, I got to turn from this. I'm just too weary. I just don't care anymore. In conviction, we, in conviction is there, there's a helpful truth that needs to be applied. Conviction always comes with a promise that God's with us and he's continuing the work that he started in us. Condemnation has no promise attached to it. It is a hateful, uh, hateful lie that we must avoid. In conviction, we are driven by delight. I want more of God and I want more of my affections upon him. Condemnation drives us by death, to death, and it's driven by death. We'll never, ever have God, God's love the way that he wants us to have it. God operates in conviction to bring us to him. 
He operates in that conviction to bring us to him because he wants us to be filled with him. He, he, in salvation, he's taking us and he's bringing us into the fellowship that he has as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Christian life is not about perfection. It's about the pursuit of perfection. Are there hypocrites in the church? Absolutely. Because we're not perfect. We sin and we battle. Tim Keller, pastor in Manhattan, said people come into church looking for heaven, not recognizing it's a hospital. We're just trying to help people along. We're all broken. I've got my own sin issues I'm still trying to not ignore, but, but actively go after and say, God, please fill me. We want to be known for our passionate pursuit of Jesus and his holiness. So we want to embrace the grace of conviction in order to attack our sin. And when we get to this point in our fight, we go deeper and we get into the heart of the battle. And to get in the heart, we, we stop... There, there's a, a method of us being able to see, you know, if I've got a, a, a cursing problem, foul mouth, and I want to, God, I need you to help me not have a foul mouth when people cut me off on the road. It's not just I need new words to say. It's I need to go deeper into my heart and figure out why I'm doing that in the first place. It's in the hearts because we put ourselves in the seat of God as judge, and we look at that person and say, I judge you as damned to hell because you cut me off. What's the root? Pride. I feel like I can tell people, have life go the way that I want it to go. So we need to learn to dig deep into our hearts in order to, to get around to the motives that lure us away from Jesus into those sinful thoughts and habits. And we, we go from a surface activity to understanding that these are heart issues that, that are beneath the surface. Jesus said in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus said, you, he's talking to the Pharisees, saying, look, you're, you're paying attention to these external things, when really the issue is internal. Outward sins start as seedlings in our hearts. And those seeds get watered when we wander off of our worship of Jesus. When we're not enamored with his exaltation anymore, when we're not basking in his beauty, our hearts, our flesh, they'll fall into the deceptive schemes of the devil himself. Now two I would put before us. One I think both of these are a result of just the culture that we live in, uh, specific to our context on the North Shore. There's an affluence and a quest for more that is around us that will wig our hearts out in a moment if we're not actively saying, God, don't, I don't want to covet what I see my neighbors have. I don't want to covet a car that I see as I pass by it every day. Because you know what happens? We start daydreaming about that thing. Ah, that's a cool car. Maybe I could work out, trade this one in. Maybe they got, eh, we'll try to figure out. Next thing you know, we are worshiping a thing rather than worshiping Jesus. Because we look at what people have and we try to figure out how to do it. Or the, the response, the other response is, 
Oh, and we will go into debt to try to figure out how to have those things. It's where we venture off. Or we'll shut down and we'll turn ourselves off to everything because we can't have what everybody else has. So we have to be aware of the affluence that captures our hearts and, and we struggle with. The other one is expectations. I have noticed in the past few years, just in our community, uh, the expectations for life. And again, social media does not help with these things because we see what other people are doing. Wow, you took a trip to the mountains? That's cool. We've got to go to the mountains. We've got to figure out how to get to the mountains because our lives are just not complete unless we go to the mountains. And it needs to be Denali, you know, Alaska. That's where we need to go because that's where I saw some people. What happens? Our hearts are wandering off. We also have expectations for kids. I didn't get into this Friday night because I forgot. I'm just, the Lord brought it back to my attention. We have these expectations that our kids need to have particular lives in order for them to be well-rounded, in order to, be, to put them on a path to success. So there's, there's a devotion that we have in our culture to sports. It's a devotion that says, forget everything else. Let's put all of our money into a travel team or this coach or this something. We, we do these weird devotion things. Now, when we're devoted to those things, we can't be devoted to those things and Jesus. But when, when those things happen, we begin to feel it. And that has a weird effect on our hearts. It has a weird effect to where we begin saying, maybe I'm failing my kids by not meeting the expectations that are around because I kind of have those expectations too. You want to do that? I'm going to try to figure out a way to let you do that. Parents and church, we're all in this together. Our kids need to know Jesus. That's what they need to know. They need to see the people of God who spend their money and their affections on God in such huge ways that they say, that's what's worth it. That's what's worth it. Remember, I've said it before. All of our kids are average. When they're little, some reach that learning curve before others. But you know what happens when they get out of high school? They're all the same. One, maybe, that's still really smart, but socially awkward. You know what I'm talking about, because somebody just popped into your mind. So what are we striving for? I want to pass on to my children that I love Jesus with everything that I am. Two things, that I love Jesus with everything that I am, and his word is true. It's true because Jesus rose from the dead. So they, we tend to have some conversations in our house about what our kids couldn't do when they were, and you get a bunch of kids that grew up as Christians and they start talking to one another and like, oh, I couldn't watch that. Oh yeah, we couldn't go there either. Oh yeah, we couldn't watch that. Oh, you can watch that? I couldn't watch that. So they, I, I've watched this happen so many times, but <laughs> I had to let them know, hey, um, those movies affected you very differently. I couldn't let Lane watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Could not do it. She turned into Veronica, Soup, uh, Veronica Salt, whatever her name is. I mean, she was like, she was three years old. It's like, no way, we cannot do this. No, you can probably watch it now, you're not going to turn into that. That's what we had to do. We just had, there's these things that we sensed as parents and went, nope, 
But we don't want to bring that battle into our home. We want to say no to that. Now, look, somebody else, they could handle that. But guess what? You watch something that they couldn't watch because their parents are shepherding their hearts the same exact way. And now that you're older, it's not going to hit you the same way. Divergent. Get back on path. We want our kids to see us giving the gospel to the next generation and not be sold out for these well-rounded experiences where we're sacrificing genuine relationships and genuine Jesus for these other things. Now look, these, these uh, affluence and expectations things, they hit on the main nerves that are in us of significance and control and comfort. And we need to actively be taking these to task and take our souls to task rather than ignoring their sabotaging advances. Now there's a... There's in the trenches, and there's digging deep, but we can't stay deep. Now, don't take this as a rescue, like, all right, can't go deep for long. We need to go deep with the Lord. We need to wrestle over some things with God himself, but we got to come up for air. We do well and should do well in digging deep to understand the inner cravings that linger in our hearts, but we shouldn't stay down too long because we will get into a morbid introspection. Like the Puritans, they, they went deep and they stayed deep. All of a sudden, that's why every picture of a Puritan, they weren't smiling. Truth learned a lot from the Puritan writers, John Owen specifically, on the mortification of sin. They never smiled. And you kind of figure that out because they're like, we are so bad. We've got to remember that we're so bad. The goal is our awareness to combat it when it surfaces in our lives. We want to know where that comes from so we can attack it and and go to God with that and not be sunken by it. When we stay, and you think about a a diver that goes down into the ocean, the deeper that diver, diver goes, the less light is penetrating down. We want to be able to go deep, but still have the light of Christ. So we need to surface. We need to come up to let Jesus' light influence us and keep us so we don't get lost in this weird non-exposure in our sin. Robert Murray McShane, pastor a couple centuries ago, said something very, very helpful. In quoting Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love, and repose, rest in his almighty arms. For every one look we take at ourselves, we take 10 looks and Christ. And we strive to live in the victory that God in Christ has won for us. So we live in victory as we bring the body of sin to nothing. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Freedom is our reality. So we are to live in it as we rest in the promises of God, and as we rehearse the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, 
left up to uh, I just I thank you so much that overcoming our sinfulness and bringing the body of sin to nothing is not something that we do on our own but you supply the grace and the power through your spirit to do it but God you want to teach us something along the way you want to teach us about you so God we want to we want to be real about our our sin patterns and our thoughts we want to fight them actively God, we want to learn Jesus in the process. So we ask, Jesus, that your light would be upon us and your light would shine over us and we would not sink too deep into our, our hearts that we're losing light. We want to stay in your light. But God, we ask for victory. We ask, God, that you really would give us tangible victory over uh, the, the patterns in our lives that we have ignored and we put up with how they sabotage every step we take in faith. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, we want to walk in your power. We want to walk in your truth for your glory, for our good.